Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member here in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you have talked, listened to my podcast, you don't talk on them. Um, you know, I've talked to people from across the country at all levels of government, all levels of experience, from U.S. Senate to borough council like myself, mayors, members of Congress, state legislators, state auditors, um, and school board people, uh, and, and all other positions I probably didn't even know existed when I first started this podcast way back. Uh, three years ago now. Uh, today I'm going to talk to my new friend Blake Allen and give him the best conversation he's ever had. Uh, and he, we're going to talk about his experiences in politics and maybe we'll all learn something along the way. And hopefully you will decide at the end of this that you should either run for office or get involved because sitting out of politics, especially with a big election coming up, um, is just inexcusable at this point. But Blake, instead of me going through your resume, first welcome. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to join you. I've been, been looking forward to it since you asked me. And you are from Oklahoma. Are you still in Oklahoma? So I actually just moved to Dallas a month ago. So just just left the, the great state of Oklahoma to the Dallas Metro for uh, a new job at a law firm down here. And are you in Dallas proper? Yes. Yes, I am. Because I have family in McKinney, which isn't far. Oh, I know McKinney. I have family in uh, Plano as well, so I'm not uh, you know unfamiliar with the area from the you know in the past. And we, I have a, a a new friend in my town. When I was in one of our local places a few weeks ago, found out that her mom was with her and lives in McKinney. So um, a weird connection because I never talked to anyone from there, especially locally. So uh, you're, th- does this mean you have to be a Cowboys fan, or you don't have to be? So, I, I mean, I don't have to be, but I think for, like, my own personal safety, it's probably a good choice. <laughs> All right. We won't bring any of that up because I they're my least favorite team. So we will avoid any conversation <laughs> or controversy there. Um, but more important than where you are, let's talk about where you've been. We both have our political upbringing, where we started. Have you always been involved in politics? Did you start one day because of an election or issue? Um, you know, when did you first become involved in this stuff? Well, I think I think I was like one of those kids who was aware of politics and kind of I'm going to say obsessed with it at an early age. But that where I first actually truly started getting involved in politics and really for you know politically aware was probably in Obama's 2008 run. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I would have I was not a voter at that point in time. I would have been a freshman in high school, but. It was the first time I really had, you know, actually paid attention mm-hmm. to a run. Uh, I paid a little bit of attention before in 06 in Oklahoma's gubernatorial race where Brad Henry was our last Democrat to get elected then. But 08 and then my first time voting in 12, uh, those two were like my absolutely 100% plugged in. And then, you know, you, you get plugged in at that age and you start you know working through like your college democrats and there's an organization in oklahoma called the oklahoma intercollegiate legislature and built a whole lot of connections through that and started working in politics after graduating college right you've worked on a number of campaigns right what, what kind of things mm-hmm. have you worked on that give you some credibility for, to talk about this because you're just not just some guy on the internet yeah yeah no absolutely um so 
the biggest and probably most notable race, because, you know, everybody likes to start out with the biggie, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is I was the uh, assistant finance director on Kendra Horn's 2018 run in Oklahoma's fifth. So I was the man locked up with a candidate doing call time, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, uh, but prior to that, though, I had worked with Kendra at uh, her nonprofit that she was running in Oklahoma City called Sally's List. And what we did at that nonprofit is we recruited uh, and trained women to run for local and state offices. So through that, I think we, in my time there, we trained six six state legislatures and our legislators and then several people would run for mayor and city councils and stuff like that. So I've been pretty deeply involved in especially Oklahoma City area local politics for years. And a few, one of my earlier guests was James Cooper from Oklahoma City. Um, he ran mm-hmm. for council. And when I talked to him, he was just effusive in praise for Kendra Horn, said she was such a great member of Congress and also at the, at the time and also uh, so involved with the community. Uh, when you work for a candidate, and I think that people miss this because people see candidates, I don't know, maybe they see themselves in them. Um, are you, what's your impression of working with someone that closely? You feel, you see them in a more impressive way on a personal level, if they're good at what they're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think working on a campaign with a candidate, especially in a position where you're working closely with them, it humanizes them. Mm-hmm. And you realize, number one, what an actual undertaking running for office is. It is it is a lot more work than I think people can give it credit for. Mm-hmm. But I think also working that closely with them, it it kind of shows somebody's true personality more than it would you know you know meeting somebody on the doors or something like that Mm -hmm. and i I think that speaking of kendra specifically and i think i will probably echo james here whenever um i talk about how good not just of a candidate she is but as a person Mm -hmm. where she would take care of individual volunteers and on a congressional race you will have hundreds of volunteers like that that's just how the nature of the beast and she she had an ability and has an ability uh, to like connect with just that individual person. And if that, my position where I was doing it more on donors, she was perfect on that. And she, and I think one of the things I really appreciated was there was this one thing that we'd like to do at the end of every single quarter is we would call small, small dollar donors to thank them. And I think spending a, we would literally spend the day after the end of the quarter just calling small dollar donors and thanking them. And I, I think that that, number one, shows the personal touch that you need to run for office, but also the personality of the person doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, you, having done finance and your younger age than me, I don't feel that old, but I'm 41, and so my first campaign was 2002. Um, your experience with finance is different than it would have been 10, 15 years ago because of the internet, right? Like, so you might not know like how that changed donations. Has that really nationalized like the small dollar donations, the the way that people are getting their name out there and fundraising so that Kendra Horn's running in Oklahoma five. Well, everyone in the country is aware of Oklahoma five. Whereas in the nineties, people were like, Oklahoma, what? Like no one would know about that. 
Is that how it feels working finance on a congressional campaign when everything's so nationalized and online? I, I think it kind of depends on how, like your position in finance. So where I was doing uh, donor outreach and call time for like specifics, um, the digital fundraising side, I think it has drastically altered it. And there are some campaigns that I think do a good job keeping their race localized mm-hmm. despite the um, temptations of national donate of national donors coming in, especially national small dollar donors. But I, I think unfortunately for a lot of Democratic campaigns and Republican campaigns for that matter, they get addicted to national small dollar donors and it causes them to message themselves in a way that ends up caught doing long-term damage to their runs. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And it feels like because everything is online, everything is nationalized as a result, um, people who are running get so excited to see their name out there, see people come, like, it's more exciting to see a thousand people donate twenty dollars than it is to see um, ten people donate max, right? Like, like that's more like you said, small dollar donors. That's more exciting to a candidate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, like the you know big dollar, do- big money donors coming in. Like, I mean, nobody's gonna be mad at what is it now a twenty eight hundred dollar check, right? No, nobody's nobody's gonna be upset about it. But the easy money, the easy quick money of putting out a tweet or sending out an email blast about a national issue that might not actually matter in your district, but will pull in five grand or something like that. That's tempting for a candidate just to keep doing that over and over again. And, and then at the end of the day, that ties them to national issues that might hurt them in their districts, especially if it's a swing seat, it, and, or, or red or a blue seat, depending on, you know, what party you run again. And I, I think, it's just that temptation, and I think it's just created some really negative feedback loops for a lot of candidates. And I think it's, I think people are learning to distance themselves from it a little bit, hopefully again. But I, I don't see any big changes coming to that for at least a couple of cycles, if I'm being honest. And it's not just congressional. It's coming down to every level of government where you see, um, I think even particularly now, in the last year at the pandemic where a state representative, um, some of them become very famous online. Some of them are great, like, and do a really good job of that. I, I really love Anna Escamani from Florida. She's been on my podcast. She's really good on local issues, but she's also very active, um, and prominent online. I think she does a good job of it, but there are others who seem to be so like almost celebrities online and you almost forget what state they run for. What, what do you think, um, how, as we get into a new campaign season, people are starting to put their names on the ballot to run for office, and particularly state legislative races, maybe running for Congress. How can people avoid that trap? And you know, what's the danger if they don't? Well, I think the danger if they don't avoid that trap, they, even if they do end up winning their race, is I, I think it takes away from their ability to more accurately represent their district. And I think it ends up harming their reelection chances down the road. It's, you know, national coalitions shift because then you've already tied yourself to a particular brand. Um, but insofar as not just if you win or if you lose, 
I think a way to try to wean yourself from that, and it's something I've still been kind of thinking about, and I've talked about it a little bit on my Twitter feed, as opposed, and you know, with other people as well, mm-hmm. is I don't have a good answer as far as how you can avoid, take advantage of that national funding stream, but avoid tying yourself to those national issues. I think that the best way to maybe avoid it is still hitting the phones and making sure you are tied into your local chamber of commerces or your local interest groups. Uh, keeping yourself local insofar as the connections you're making is one route around just trying to get into those donor streams. It does seem like Democrats, as the party of government, should be good at touting good government. And yet we're always chasing after these shiny objects of whatever the issue is at the time that's so exciting. Um, and maybe it was particularly true because of a presidential race that was nationalized as a result and there were so many candidates running. But you have an infrastructure bill that passed, which as a local official to me, that's great. Um, I can go and t- take pictures of the new roads that are being built, the new sewer system that we can afford, etc. Um, we don't have a new sewer system, so no one's like, oh, if you're listening. Um, but, uh, you know, those are things where, like, uh, I think a smart pro-government party, which a Democrat should be, um, maybe that's a strategy for the future, just touting all these candidates who are in office and making government work better. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly a route forward, and I, I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit there. Democrats have a shiny object problem sometimes where you can't, they, they don't have a deep ability to celebrate the wins that they have and fully explain them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I mean, for instance, in the infrastructure bill that passed, I mean, we're going to be able to get rid of most of the lead pipes in the United States. That's massive. You, we, I mean, even if people may have complaints over the distribution of highway to transit funding, it's the largest transit bill in U.S. history out, you know, as far as mass transit goes. I mean, there are wins that we don't talk about that matter on the local level and not saying local officials don't talk about it. They certainly do. But as a national organization or party, the Democratic Party doesn't do a fantastic job at that. Uh, the flip side is, is as somebody who lives in a state, well, Oklahoma, that's controlled by Republicans, Republicans have often have some of the same similar issues to where they don't point towards some of the good governance things that they're capable of and instead point to uh, culture war issues or something else that they are currently fighting. And then you end up having people with their needs left wanting. So the needs that we have for 2022 are the needs to win elections. It's a, the, the, the U.S. Congress is down to a very narrow majority. Um, it's possible, I think it's possible for Democrats to increase their majority, especially since the redistricting seems to have not been a net negative to Democrats, at least in terms of how it could have been. Um, you have the Senate, which is 50-50. In 2018, even though Democrats swept took over the House. Republicans won some extra Senate seats. Um, so very possible, especially in Pennsylvania, we could win a Senate seat, and hopefully we do, Wisconsin, et cetera. Um, what do you think is a way for Democrats to kind of re- reshift gears 
and get on a good message. You don't have to fix everything, but like, what would, what do you think would be a way that we can kind of make inroads, especially in places where maybe it's been harder to win? Well, and you don't have to, and I don't think we can just like plan to win next year. Like there's one magic, like a lot of it takes long-term building, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, uh, I've told people that for Democrats to come back statewide in Oklahoma, it's a 20 year project. Like some of these places haven't been invested in by the party in a solid decade to 20 years. No, more. And yeah. And it's just, you can't expect communities to trust you to represent their interest. If you haven't been in them working, uh, and I, I, going back to the infrastructure bill, I think that's a perfect example of how we can start doing that, uh, touting actually bringing services to people. Um, now, I have been pretty vocal about, uh, as you are probably aware as well, David Shore's uh, Shoreisms of trying to fit our messaging to the average, to the median voter. And I think recognizing the fact that some of the Democrats' messaging flaws are self-inflicted. Now, granted, sometimes do I think that the media may latch on to some of our kookier voices. I, I do think that, but I think we have to recognize where people are at and meet them there. Uh, talking about, uh, as I think Abigail Spanberger said, uh, kitchen table issues mm-hmm. are important. So I think how we get back into communities, and I, I don't, with the way the national environment currently sets, I would give you, I would give you some pushback on growing the House majority. But I think to be able to stem potential losses, I think we have to run on our record of success that we do have and not just focusing on our intra-party fighting over, for instance, the Build Back Better program, Mm -hmm. which I still think is going to pass come in like probably March in some altered Joe Manchin approved form. But... I think focusing on touting our wins as opposed to constantly highlighting our infighting is one way to make Congress and therefore Democrats look more effective at governing. Yeah, and I see all of these people um, online. You see them too. And I know we have shared the same opinions about this. They're like, we need to go and rally outside and tell Joe Manchin how upset we are. We're going to send letters to Joe Manchin. We're going to go after Joe Manchin. It's like, you know, there's 50 other people who are terrible, right? Like, Joe Manchin's voted for every Joe Biden judge. He's voted for the infrastructure. He, we are lucky Joe Manchin is there. If this is like, especially because Joe Manchin is probably more progressive, he wouldn't want to say that, than a lot of other Senate Democrats have been over the last 20 years. And I feel like Democrats just love to fight other Democrats lately more than they like fighting the Republicans. Well, they, they all, you know, they did, they have said, and I've heard it, well, I've said, heard it said before that the Democratic Party is, is about three to four different parties sitting on each other's shoulders in a big trench coat. So I, I, the Democrats and Democrats and infighting, I think, kind of go hand in hand, but you are also right. If Joe Manchin was in the Senate in 2008, he would be the, probably be the median Democratic senator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he would be, the, the, I, I, I would rather him than Joe Lieberman. Well, exactly. And I, I think that 
I think that people fail to appreciate at times how quickly the Democratic Party has changed, Mm -hmm. uh, how much Obama's stamp on the party still remains. I mean, Joe Manchin is wanting in his preferred Build Back Better program that he offered to President Biden, he wanted to improve the ACA. He still had $600 billion in climate funding. And he wanted to change the tax code to get rid of some of its regressiveness, especially from the TCJA passed by the Republicans in um, in two thousand six or two thousand seventeen. So, as much as I understand the frustration behind some of the things that Joe Manchin is doing, I also like want to point out, like as you said, he's been there every single time we needed him. And in some respects, what he's doing or what he's done to the bill, making it more focused, more permanent programs, that actually makes it an easier sell to the American public. Yeah. I mean, if he if they did not talk about Build Back Better and instead at all, they just said, we're going to work on this bill. And then the final bill, at least in the details he said, came out tomorrow and it was just brand new. But with his approval, I would be everyone be thrilled. Instead, everyone's talking about how it came down from $6 trillion instead of, well, there's zero now, and it's coming up to whatever it is. Like, Democrats just, it's frustrating that they can't take any wins at all. And I don't know, is there a way that we can turn that around ever? Well, I, I think that the thing about it is, is that the loudest portion of of the people who can't take wins are the very online portion of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Not to say that the online portion of the Democratic Party doesn't matter. They do. They help shape the narrative. They are big at getting money in. But at the same time, they represent probably 15 to 20% of the party. And... I'm not saying that they're not going to get in line or they're not going to be, there's not reasons to be asking for more. You should always ask your representatives for what you want. And if you're upset about it, you should voice your opinion. But I think that there has to be a way for not just the Biden administration, but also he has a good working relationship with the one person who can bring some of those more progressive outside groups into line is getting Bernie Sanders to give cert, you know, give his seal of approval to these policies. And if you want, if you want to bring the democratic party in line behind it, if you get a Joe Manchin, Bernie Sanders seal of approval, you probably have it. No, but that's like pulling teeth. It is like pulling teeth. One thing that's also like pulling teeth is the democratic doomerism and liberal doomerism in general. That is just, it's really exhausting and frustrating to me. And I understand where some of it comes from. Um, there's this new movie, Don't Look Up, that a lot I haven't watched, but it, it seems like scolding to me once I see the reviews for it. So I haven't just, I've almost not wanted to see it, but it's almost like people, especially on the left, and I consider myself pretty liberal, um, they almost love seeing the the negative news about climate change, which is what that movie, well, I guess that movie's about, um, whether that, COVID, all these things, and just pointing to how things are terrible when 
you know, yes, the pandemic is terrible, but our ability to handle these things is better than it's probably ever been in history. Is there a way that we can, what, what can we do as leaders like myself on a local level or the people you might recommend, you might campaign for, um, in any way on a campaign, what can we do to combat that doomerism, um, in it, it to be successful? And also, uh, not to ask too long-winded a question, but campaigns often are successful with energy based on anger. But I don't think that's sustainable. Is there a way to campaign successfully without campaigning that way right now as a Democrat? Yeah, so um, to kind of approach both questions, I think, at the same time, there was an article written by uh, Noah Smith which talked about uh, progressive patriotism. Mm -hmm. And it hit on some notes that I had been talking about for a little while. And essentially it's that Democrats have moved away from talking not just about Obama-era hope and change, which I think as far as slogans, uh, that's about as hopeful as you can get as far as just pure one-line slogans. Um, But it also was emblematic of an era of the Democratic Party and liberalism, or however you want to describe it, that was hopeful, that was able to sell a positive message, as opposed to, we're going to, as opposed to some of the louder voices that you hear today that say like the American dream isn't achievable or uh, this movement in the democratic party away from triumphing, uh, hard work. And I, I think if we can turn back the clock in a way to embracing that, if you want to call it liberal or progressive patriotism to where we can say that, yeah, there might be some issues in the United States that we need to fix, but this is still a great country where people can succeed. And not just through government's work, helping them, which the government has a place in it that it does. And it's helped millions of people. But if we can also get back to acknowledging the value or the, the importance of hard work in doing that. I I think that's something we miss. And I I think personally, I think that's partly why the democratic party has also been suffering in not just white working class communities, but also more recently in Hispanic working class communities, because these are communities that do value if not only the actual hard work itself, but the ethos of that, or just, like I said, just purely symbolic patriotism of saying that the United States is, you know, however you want to term it, like the best country in the world, or, you know, just just things like that, I think are missing, if not from the upper echelons of the Democratic Party, then at least it's missing some of the same spirit that it used to have. And I think that's necessary for us to not just sell the party itself, but to sell a new rebranding of, uh, like I said, a positive patriotism in the party. I'm very much in favor of that. You just said something I wanted, I almost jumped in to to interrupt to use it so I didn't forget, but you said the upper echelons of the party. And um, I think that, yes, there have always been 
I hate the word elites or people in smoke behind the curtain, whatever, and every political party and whatnot. But um, the Democratic Party over the last few years in the backlash to Trump has become more a party representing maybe me. It's a party of college-educated suburban voters. That's where these swing districts were. My county, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, was the only county that voted Republican when Bob Casey Sr. ran for governor in 1990. And now it's like maybe the second, it's the second or third most Democratic county in the state. And we're the reason why it flipped to Biden this year. Um, and I feel like that is great for raising money. And nothing against my neighbors in my county who are wonderful and I love them all, but I think that it's not necessarily a positive the Democratic Party is more in line with that than with someone like Tim Ryan, who, that's who the Democratic Party is supposed to be, that working class party, whatever issues they are, it's not supposed to be the the wine drinking, call it, like, get your master's degree, let's listen to all these people with a lot of initials after the name party, right? Yeah, and I think that that's something we kind of lose sight of a little bit is, in the United States, something like less than 30% of people in the country have a college degree. Mm-hmm. The largest voting block in the United States by far is still white working class voters. Um, and then that doesn't even mention that so much of our party is built on a coalition of minority working class voters. Mm-hmm. And I, I think... And I, not to dive into like, you know, more social issues, but I, I think that's something that we forget in not just our messaging, like not just like in our party uh, dynamics, but also like our party messaging. Uh, the most ballyhooed one probably of the past cycle is the use of, say, Latinx to describe, right. to try to describe the Hispanic community. We, we mostly, have gotten that out of our system by now, but I I think that's emblematic of a larger issue where not only are we becoming a more um, college educated party, which isn't necessarily an issue. Like you said, it, it comes with benefits and it did somewhat help relieve democratic um, political geography issues in a few States. But the flip side to it is, is that that means that people like me, who used to be part of the Democratic consultant campaign working class, that means that our ideas on what messaging should be don't necessarily match what the demographics of our country think it should be. And we had that shown through at like there was there was a couple of ads. And it was a, I forget who the study was done by, but it was a series of democratic, uh, democratic attack ads that when it was about Trump, I believe when shown to democratic campaign consultants, they rated it extremely highly. They all like it had very high approval ratings with them, but whenever it was shown to to, uh, working class voters in this study, it actually convinced more of them to vote for Trump. Mm. And I think that while that's just one study, I think, like I said, it's emblematic of a deeper issue to where we're losing our ability to message to that median voter, to that uh, 
the mythical median voter to where you can have a wider appeal for what you're trying to sell. Right. I remember when uh, Obama ran for the second time and he had that wonderful ad against Mitt Romney with him singing God Bless America or whatnot. And it was with all the plants that had been shut down based on his capital company being capital. And it was yeah. like the best ad of the year. And like Obama didn't say anything in it. It was just, you know, brutal about the the wealth. And it seems like Democrats, it, it was, it's funny the way that we attack Trump because so many Democrats and liberals in Hollywood, et cetera, made fun of Trump for not actually being that wealthy. It's like, that that's not a way to like attract or other working class people who Democrats should have, whatever their race. And yeah. it, it seems like we all fell into this like comedy instead of, it's like, I love professional wrestling. I'm sure you were just watching AEW too. Speaking of Oklahoma, Jim Ross just beat Kansas, which is great. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, they, they say that comedy is great in wrestling, but comedy doesn't sell. It's not what people gets people in the to see a fight and politics is about fighting, but comedy doesn't necessarily get people to the polls either. So, you know, do you, do you think that there's a way for us to get back to the basics of what we can do? Is there, is there something that as the campaign season starts, and that's what we're getting into here, um, that we could kind of re get back to those those core values, no matter what person's background is to be that working class party that Harry Reid was really a big champion of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think I'd kind of hinted towards that a little bit earlier whenever I was talking about the Democratic Party needs to sell the American dream as something that's achievable. Mm -hmm. Not just something that's a pie in the sky or that was something that used to be achievable but no longer is. Um, and I, I think we get to that, like I said, firstly, by selling the jobs that we create. And I think we've done it. I think, obviously, the infrastructure bill will be creating jobs. Uh, I think trumpeting that, talking about how we have defended uh, unions is another way to, especially in the Rust Belt, where mm -hmm. that's, that's obviously a very important demographic that the Democratic Party has been losing vote share in quickly in a whole lot of states across mm -hmm. the Midwest. Um, and obviously you can tailor that message for different areas, but I, I think focusing once again on those bread and butter issues combined with talking about the patrioticness behind them is a good way to, if not reverse trends, because that's, a longer project than one cycle will give you, then it at least helps you maybe get your foot into the door. And we can even do other things if we wanted to get more specific. Uh, ranching communities mm -hmm. right now, uh, number one, ranching, uh, ranchers used to be a democratic, there, there used to be strong democratic roots in like the Cattlemen's Association and stuff like that. Consolidation in the meatpacking industry is harming them we can talk about how democratic trade policies because right now the Republican party is not as pro trade as they used to be, but you know, there are policies that we can make to reach disaffected communities that not just help those communities, but can help Democrats in the long run. And I, I think there are avenues for that. I find it really baffling that it seems like Democrats and liberals do not focus enough on talking about climate change with rural 
workers and voters because they're, they're like it's almost like we lost that constituency and decided that well they're gone it's no point to it but yes rising sea levels will will hurt florida or um might hurt some other things but no one is going to be hurt more than agriculture when it comes to the issues of climate change and i don't do you know of any democratic groups that are trying to work with rural workers on the impact of climate change and what we can do about it what both fixing it and um, helping those people mitigate the damage of it. I, I'm sure there are. I, I don't, I don't personally know, know of any at the top of my head, but uh, my one, and I, this, I don't know how much of an indictment is on anything, but while climate change is clearly an extremely important issue and a very big over the horizon and current day problem that we're going to, that we are dealing with, Voters understand that climate change is important, but whenever we look at um, issue prioritization, climate change is always near the bottom of polled issues. Well, yeah, it's, and I don't want to interrupt, but I mean, what I mean is, like, instead of talking about it from this, like, very high level of whatever it means, I follow a lot of people, it's important to me, but, um, you know, talking about the policies that will help people today, because... If you are raising cattle, you know that the food and the things that they're doing, the, the earth, the ground, is so important. If you're not getting the proper rainfall, the proper rainfall, whether it's right be enough or too much, um, that is so important. And it's I don't hear that messaging anywhere. Maybe it's because there's not enough Democrats running for office in those areas. Well, I mean, partly you're, you're entirely right. But I think we can look at the messaging of, say, a John Tester. Who I love. Um, who, yeah, fantastic senator. And the way that I've seen him approach it isn't, like you said, to have this high-level science approach to it. As with any issue, um, I think tailoring the, not just the messaging, but the programmatic response to it mm -hmm. is important. And how he does it is he talks about, like, soil remediation issues or water retention, mm -hmm. water, you know, like like you're talking about like rainfall so like water retention is so big a deal in the interior west and mm -hmm. water rights and stuff like that so i i think if the democratic party wanted to have a deeper focus on climate issues that are that's impacting you know farmers and ranchers i think going about it that way like like you had initially said not in a high level like look at the difference in like celsius or whatever you want to do who even knows what means right yeah yeah but because like that doesn't impact you on the ground you don't see that this year is the second highest in record you just see that oh there's more tornadoes and there's less and there's less periodic rainfall and I, I think i think highlighting those individual issues i think is how we can message that better in rural communities is just saying these issues are starting to come up more let's find a solution to them and let's work together and we should be doing those things not just because it might win some voters and cut the margins, but because they're the right thing to do because those communities will be hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Because once again, if we aren't trying to help everyone in the country, regardless of where they're at, are we really a party that's worth it? Right. And I think that's true whether you're in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, or you're in Oklahoma or Dallas or anywhere in the country. Um, before I let you go, what you you seem to have a pretty grounded 
look at the Democratic Party, politics in general, the issues, what kind of things do you look at and follow online maybe that could cleanse someone's online palette, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc.? Because, you know, so many people I know, some people follow, like, grounded level things that aren't alarmist, and some people are following the most alarmist accounts possible with those sirens and everything about every issue possible. So are there are there any things that you follow that you think are worth people's time to kind of, uh, you know, get into the oasis of the crazy desert of information? Well, other than emphasizing people should have hobbies other than politics, because, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just as happy yelling at the Oklahoma Sooners on a Saturday as I am uh, reading an article from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um I think just finding not just a non-political oasis, but if we're talking about a political oasis, I think one of the things that helps keep me grounded is following people who I don't ideologically agree with from the other side of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, I'm not telling everybody to go follow Tucker Carlson on Twitter, but there are solid people that are worth following that give you a different perspective. Um, I, for instance, have been really interested in following a couple of guys such as uh, Scott Lincecum from the, um, Oh, I just pulled a big blank on, on where he works. This is the Cato Institute. I, mm-hmm. uh, I follow, uh, like I mentioned him earlier, Noah Smith, uh, now, I will probably be called a neoliberal shill for saying this, but also somebody like a Matty, uh, like a Matt Iglesias. Or, but th- th- those are the type of people who maybe I don't always agree with all, everything they're saying, but it helps keep me grounded insofar as it doesn't, not just gives me a, an outside look into where I'm sitting at, it also helps open my mind to changing my opinions on some things. Because... As uh, Kendra, whenever I worked on the campaign with her, uh, used to say, not every every party does not have a monopoly on a good idea. Yeah, I, I follow like Liam Donovan, who is a uh, I think he's a Republican strategist or lobbyist, and yeah, like, I follow Liam as well. And I have been re- more reassured about Democratic policy following him than I have been following <laughs> liberals. He's a, like, all right, well, you make me feel more okay about the future of my party than the actual party does, and that's worrisome. But, um, but very grounded. So, but also following you is reassuring. That's why I'm talking to you. So, people want to follow you and maybe learn more, see where you go next. Um, where should they go? What's the best way to follow you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, right now I'm just super active on Twitter because, right. of course, I am. And so my ad is at Blake underscore Allen 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be some other stuff coming up soon, but that is still TBD. And I will be talking about that more on Twitter if it does end up coming about. But otherwise, follow me on Twitter. Great. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm excited for whatever you do next. Um, aside from being in Dallas and rooting for the Cowboys, I can't. I can't be okay with that. So, uh, well, best of luck to you. And if you're listening to this, maybe you should get involved in a campaign or maybe you should run for office. Uh, Thanks so much, Blake, and best of luck. Thanks, Tony. You as well.